Yeah, congratulations to you too. Very good. Well, some of you are familiar with the name Gordon McDonald. He is an author. He was a pastor for years. He led a couple of uh, rather prominent ministries at different times. But uh, he travels a lot, and uh, he, he likes to, like maybe some of you, he likes to get a seat on the exit row because there's more leg room, right? But he says, with privilege comes responsibility. And so in one of his books, he, he says, this is what happened just before takeoff on one flight. He says, the flight attendant comes up, kneels by my aisle seat, and says, have you read the instruction card that, co- that tells you how to open the door? In case of an emergency, I need a verbal answer. I fudge the truth a bit and say yes when the truthful answer is no. I mean, does it take a rocket scientist to know how, how to know that you simply swivel the handle and push the door out and to the side? So I tell her, yes, I've read the card. But she is smart and she says, If an emergency happens, I'll be depending on you to open that door. Dozens of other people will also be relying on you too. So are you sure you know what's on that card? Suddenly, she has my attention. I tell you that story because it's possible that the passage we're going to look at today may have the same effect on you that that flight attendant initially had on Gordon McDonald. You may see this passage and you may say, Uh, Yeah, I've read that. I've been over that before. Do we really need to talk about that again? Okay. So you might say, been there, done that. I also hope that I have the effect on you that the flight attendant eventually had on Gordon McDonald, because I would tell you that the lives of many, many people in this church and beyond, the lives of many, many people depend on us understanding and actually embodying the things we're going to look at today. In other words, what we're going to talk about today really matters. And so we're going to begin today a sermon series from the book of Philippians, and we're going to look at Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. And in these verses, Paul tells the Philippians, he, he, he gives this, this uh, reminder of these two core marks of a healthy, maturing church. It's not only healthy, but it's also progressing. It's a maturing church. And I would say to us as individuals and as a body is that if we don't embody these two things we're going to talk about today, it will dramatically affect our mission. It will hamstring everything that we're trying to do as a church. And it's just like in a family, in your family, how you treat each other, how you actually behave affects the health and what happens in your family. The same way the church is a spiritual family. We're not just supposed to act like a family. We are a family. The question is, what kind of family are we? Are we healthy? Are we maturing? And so Paul tells us two core things we need to to embody if we're going to be healthy and maturing. And the Philippian church is one of the healthiest churches that Paul planted There were other churches that were full of doctrinal, moral, uh, theological, relational problems, and Paul's letters to those churches were painful to write, and I'm sure they were painful to receive. They were profitable but painful. But when Paul wrote the Philippians, it was pure joy. There were some things he wanted to address. He had concerns, but it was by and large a healthy, maturing church. And so let's, we're going to look at the greeting very briefly, then we're going to look at these two marks of a, a healthy, maturing church. And so when we write letters, we typically sign our name at the bottom, right? But in that day, they would put the name of the, the uh, 
uh, writer up front, then the recipient, and then a short greeting. And that's what Paul did. Look at verse 1 of Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Normally when Paul wrote a letter, he he announced himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He reminded them of his authority over the churches. But his relationship with the Philippians was so warm and affectionate uh, that he didn't feel the need to to address or to uh, uh, identify himself that way. He just says, Paul and Timothy, we are bondservants of Christ Jesus. In other words, we are, are, he is our master and we will do whatever he tells us to do, whatever the cost. And so he announced himself that way and then he addresses the entire church to all the saints. So we're going to see throughout this passage, he says, all, all of you, every one of you, all the saints, meaning all believers, including the leadership, the overseers who were elders and then deacons. And to the church at Philippi, Paul gives this blessing or this aspiration. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so grace is the favor that God freely gives to everyone who wants it. Grace to you and then peace is wholeness or well-being. The Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shalom. And that comes through a relationship with God. You have peace with God. You have peace with one another. It breaks down all these barriers between different peoples. And so Paul uses these two words to pronounce a blessing on his leaders. He remind these readers, he reminds them that grace and peace flow not only from God, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ, which in chapter two has been raised up and seated at the right hand of God. In beginning in verses three through eight, we see the first mark of a healthy, maturing church, and that's a comprehensive commitment to the gospel, a comprehensive commitment to the gospel. And so imagine if you received a letter, and this is the way it began. This, you received a letter from somebody that you just respected perhaps more than anybody else, somebody who you just loved, that you, you wanted their, their affirmation. And this letter said this. This is what Paul writes. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you. And so Paul says, every time I remember, remember you, I give thanks to God. And when I give thanks to God, I pray for you, not grudgingly, but I pray with, with joy. And we wonder, why was Paul so thankful? Why was he so joyful? Why so much affection for this church? Well, he tells him in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And the word participation, sometimes it's translated partnership. The NIV translates it partnership. It's the word koinonia, which is a Greek word that's kind of made its way into our, our, uh, our language. But koinonia, it's fellowship. It's commonality. And, uh, and we experience this in all different areas of life. So if you, if you travel somewhere and you meet someone from your hometown or from your state, if you go to another country and you meet somebody from your home country, what happens? You just have this, this commonality. When I meet somebody from Mississippi, okay, we never have any shortage of anything to talk about. There's just this camaraderie and we talk. Something similar happens in professions or careers. When you meet somebody who does the same type of work that you do quite often, yeah, you just, you just connect and you have this camaraderie. Well, Paul had that with the Philippians because of their koinonia, their commonality in the gospel. 
They had the same commitment to the gospel. Paul never had to badger. He never had to nag the, the Philippians. You should really be committed to this message about Jesus, experiencing it and sharing it with others. No, they already had this, this commitment. And Paul mentions that, that they had it from the, first, uh, from the first day until now. And that's a reference to when they first received the gospel. Read Acts 16 sometime. It is this wild story about how the gospel came to Philippi. Uh, they went to Philippi, and, and uh, the first person they shared Christ with was this woman named Lydia. And, and uh, Luke tells this factoid about Lydia. She was a seller of purple cloth, okay? And Lydia and her household came to Christ. A series of events, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail, and there's an earthquake at midnight, and they lead the jailer and his household to Christ. And so this, this was the, 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 the nucleus of this precious church in Philippi about 10 years earlier. And so from that day, they had this commitment to the gospel. And so they heard the good news, and they experienced it. I mean, they experienced it firsthand. You put your faith in Christ, the burden is gone. Your sin is taken away. You are forgiven. You're given life. You're part of a family. You're in the kingdom of God. You now have a new, you're a new creature in Christ. You have new appetites. You have a purpose for living. And so they had experienced it, and it was so good, they actually believed it was good news. They were convinced it was good news, and so they shared it with others. They had this, this commitment to the gospel. And so when Paul looked backwards, he saw the, the Philippians' commitment to the gospel, and so it only made sense that when he looked forward, he was convinced that God would keep doing in their lives what had happened in the past. And so in verse 6, Paul writes this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so because of their experience with the gospel and their commitment with the gospel in the past, Paul looked forward and he said, I'm, I'm convinced that God who began this in you, he's going to keep perfecting you, keep maturing you until the day that Jesus Christ returns. Now understand, Paul would not have written this to every church. He would not have written verse 6 probably to the Corinthian church. Uh, that was a church that was full of infighting, it was full of unchecked sin. Uh, the gospel was, was uh, in jeopardy in some ways. The church of Galatia, he wouldn't have written this to them. They were, they were moving away from the gospel that they had first received, and so he didn't have this confidence. Uh, and so it's a sobering thing to realize that verse 6, and sometimes it's taken this way, but it is not an unconditional statement that every church that exists, God will perfect it till the day of Christ Jesus. It's just not the case. Read Revelation 2. Church at Ephesus was one of the healthiest churches in Paul's day, but in Revelation 2, Jesus writes a letter to the church. He says, unless you repent, unless you turn, and you love the way you did it first, I will remove your lampstand. In other words, I will remove my presence. Uh, I, will remove, uh, I will remove my blessing from that church. Some churches stray so far that God will not really, because of their lack of faith, they cannot continue and perfect what he began in their midst. And so this is a, this is a sobering reality. But when it came to the church at Philippi, Paul was confident that God would continue this good work. And he explains in verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, again, all of you, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospels, the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And this is probably a reference to Paul's current imprisonment in Rome. Throughout his imprisonment and legal proceedings, the Philippians stood with him. And so it wasn't just a few committed people within the church. He said, all of you are partakers with me. And because of that broad-based participation in the gospel, Paul is confident God who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's why he held them so close to his heart. Verse 8, for God is my witness. He says, if need be, I would bring, put God on the witness stand. God himself would tell you, God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love you. I have the same affection for you that Jesus has for you. And so Paul really could not have expressed his affection for them in any more fervently. And surely Paul's affection mirrored God's affection for them. And so it's a striking thing. Can you imagine getting a letter like that where someone like Paul would write this to you? And if you keep reading in Philippians, you see at least four ways that they were committed to the gospel and they participated in the gospel. And I've listed those in your, in your bulletin there. But Paul, they prayed for Paul, they supported Paul financially, they sent people to encourage Paul, and they shared the gospel there in Philippi. And so we'll look at each of those when we get to those relevant passages. But they understood that, that they were to do in their hometown of Philippi the same things that Paul was doing in other parts of the Roman Empire. And so they had this, this comprehensive commitment to the gospel. So what does this mean for us? I mean, well, how, how, do we, how do we embody this? Do we embody this commitment to the gospel? Well, a few thoughts on that. You know, every, every church, just like every organization, has a life cycle. And pretty much every, every church begins with a strong commitment uh, to see people come to Christ, have this white-hot commitment, we want to see people come to Christ. I mean, that's why people plant churches, right? They don't normally say, yeah, we don't have anything to do. Well, what if we, what if we plant a church? No big deal. No, people have this desire to see people come to Christ. But what often happens is that, oh, as the years pass, move from this commitment to the gospel and reaching people for Christ and making disciples, people who can, can lead others to Christ, they kind of settle, kind of drift and settle for, well, actually, we'd be happy just being a, a good church or a friendly church or a doctrinally sound or tend, tend to be good things, but there's this drift from the mission of seeing people come to faith in Christ. And we've wrestled with this over the years at, at Faith, quite honestly. We've been in existence uh, for 32 years, and this church started with this, this very clear commitment. We want to be a church that majors on the majors, where we have these core doctrines, this orthodox Christianity, and that's the core of our unity. And we want to see people come to, come to Christ. We want to make disciples here in our own, our own community. And... Uh, and we, uh, since the mid-90s, we sent people as missionaries to serve in different parts of the world. We pray for missionaries. We support missionaries financially. We send people to encourage missionaries. And we've had this deep commitment from day one that we need to be the same kind of church here in Manhattan that we send other people to plant in other, other places in the world. And the way we put it quite often is, how dare we say to some people, we think it's worth it for you to leave home and farms and careers and everything and go to another part of the world and share Christ and give your life if necessary. We believe it's worth it for you to do that. 
But for us, we're going to live a kind of a comfortable life. We, we really don't want to be inconvenienced by the gospel here at home. We say, how dare we say that? No, of course, we need to be the same. We need to have the same commitment here in our culture that we send other people to have in other cultures. And we've had to revisit, we've had to reestablish this commitment to the gospel over the years. And the, the past several years, we have become more convinced than ever that this church does not only exist for us, okay? It obviously does exist for us. I mean, we want this to be a wonderful church, nourishing, life-giving church. But we also exist for those that we've never met yet, people outside of the church community, people that have never heard the gospel of Christ in our community and surrounding areas and in other parts, other parts of the world. And so this is our mission here in Manhattan. And that's why we're doing this, this experience called Rooted. That's, it's not just a good program we want to do. We're, it's, it's a way to help people become actual disciples of Christ, begin following Christ. And so one of the emphases in Rooted is to understand the gospel, become clear on the gospel. And then we talk about how to share your own story, how to share the gospel with other people. And so it's a way to actually uh, engage the mission of the church and uh, be used in that process. And so that's the core of our unity. And actually, we are seeing at, at Faith a new generation of people being raised up uh, to go to other, other countries, to go to other cultures. A lot of times it happens at, at the universities where people get this, this vision and this, this call. And uh, if you haven't done so already, we have a missions wall out there right outside the worship center. It's the wall with the map on it. But uh, read that sometime. It doesn't give many details for a variety of reasons, but it gives kind of an overview, kind of a, a grid of what, what faith is involved in around the world. And on the monitor, you'll see, you'll see pictures of, uh, of those that we've sent to other cultures. But as I think of this church, I, I can honestly say that there is a core group of people here at Faith who are as committed to the gospel this comprehensive commitment to the gospel that we see in the, in the lives of the Philippians. I have, I have conversations with people every week, uh, people who are passionate about sharing Christ. They're experiencing the gospel themselves, and they're burdened for their friends, their family, to come to faith in Christ. And they're taking risks in their lives to speak the name of Christ and to have friendships, honest friendships, wherever they head. But wherever they go, these friendships, but honest friendships in which they can share Christ with other people. And so that is an amazing thing, and I'm encouraged by that. I'm built up by that, but it can't be just a core. It has to be widespread. This has to be a common commitment. Paul says, all of you are partakers. All of you have this commitment to the gospel. And so that's what we need. We need to be experiencing it. We need to be convinced and then we can be convincing in our witness. And so the first core commitment is this, this, uh, this comprehensive uh, commitment to the gospel. The second we see in verses 9 through 11 is a, a growing capacity to love. So earlier in verses 3 and 4, Paul told them that he prayed for them. In verses 9 through 11, he tells them what he prayed for them. And he prayed for their capacity to love more and more. He says this, and this I pray, verse 9, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So the basic petition is what was that their love may abound still more and more. 
And Paul could have been could have used a number of, of Greek words for love, but he used a specific one, the word agape, which uh, was largely a Christian invention. It was a new thing. It was a new type of love. And it's different from the type of love that people commonly commonly show others. The most common type of love is we say, I will love you if I think you deserve it, or I will love you if I happen to like you, or I will love you if you treat me the way I want to be treated. Agape love, that type of love has nothing to do with the person you're loving. Agape love is, has to do with the quality in the person doing the loving. That's the way God loved us, Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, God sent his one and only son to die for us. And so that's the type of love that God showed us. And so if we've experienced it, that's the type of love we show, show other people. And of course, that love is expressed through words, but also actions. There used to be a day where some churches, they, they, were, they love people through words. We're con- concerned about their souls, so we're going to share in word. And others shared in deed. We're concerned about their bodies as holy. So what God has joined together, let no one separate. We, we should love people in word and in deed. Good words, the gospel, go hand in hand with good deeds. We're to be zealous for good works. And so Paul had seen that type of love in the Philippians. He wanted it to abound still more. And Paul was very wise when he prayed that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul understood that love has content and that love requires discernment. Both are important. And so love has content. Uh, Paul says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. And that's basically the knowledge of God and his ways that comes from Scripture. And so what this means, among other things, that biblical truth should inform the way we love other people. If we ignore biblical truth, we'll love people in ways that make sense to us or that seem intuitive to us, but Scripture is often counterintuitive. Scripture tells us things like, love your enemies, bless people, don't curse people, bless people. If your enemy does this to you, you bless and don't curse. And so it's very counterintuitive. And so uh, the better you know God, the better you know God's ways, the better you can love others. Love has content, but but content alone is not enough. Second, love requires discernment. And so Paul also prayed that their love would abound more and more with all discernment or with depth of insight. And so scripture needs to be applied skillfully because life's situations are very complex. You may have noticed when you read the Bible, it does not address every single situation you find yourself in. When you're in this situation, do these three things. Generally speaking, scripture gives perspectives. It gives principles. It gives illustrations, examples of how we should live our lives. And it requires wisdom to know what to do in specific situations. The principles, the perspectives in Scripture must be applied wisely and skillfully. And so this is why what we talked about last week is so important. We talked about from Psalm 119 about delighting in God's Word. 
and having this upfront commitment to meditate and obey and crying out to God, would you teach me? Would you give me wisdom? And then would you empower me to live out the things you show me? If we don't have this approach to, to God's word, we won't abound more and more with real knowledge and we won't have insight. We won't have discernment. And so again, we, we will, we will uh, treat others in ways that are contrary to scripture, thinking that we're loving them, and then we will be baffled when we experience such strife and turmoil. And so whether or not the word of Christ dwells richly within us will affect the health and the maturity of this church. It is essential that we abide in Christ and let his words abide in us. If that's not happening, we will not be able to love one another the way we're supposed to. Verses 10 and 11 give the results of that growing capacity to love. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. You look and you, you're able to discern, okay, yeah, that's excellent. And so we're going we're gonna to be committed to that. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, we're going to grow in holiness. And uh, he says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul's saying, if you do this, this confidence I have that God who began a good work in you, he will actually complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, till the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. And there's a sense in which our entire lives are pointed toward that day. You find the New Testament law saying, that's the day, on that day, I want to receive the well done. I'm going to live my life now in light of that day. And so, uh, when we talk about the importance of love... Again, if we're honest, I know you've heard this before, okay? It would be very easy for you to be like Gordon McDonald on the, on the aisle seat on the exit row when the flight attendant first came up to him. He'd say, yeah, got it. This is not complicated. We've heard this all. Do we really have to rehearse this again? We have to rehearse this over and over. We so easily move from these things. If you and I don't excel in love, I mean love that's informed by real knowledge and true discernment, it doesn't matter if we do rooted or not. Honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're involved in the community and we're blessing people. It doesn't matter if we raise vast sums of it. It doesn't matter what our facilities are like. It doesn't matter uh, where we send missionaries. If we do not exhibit this type of love, we will fail. We will absolutely fail in our mission. Why do I say that? 1 Corinthians 13, again, one of the most common scriptures known to, to humanity. I can speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, if I don't have love, absolutely no value in the kingdom of God. You can be, have amazing spiritual gifts. Paul said you can have all knowledge, uh, you can have all wisdom, but if you don't have love, it does not matter. He said, you can actually sell everything you have. Imagine selling everything you have and giving the proceeds to the poor. Or in some radical circumstance, you give your body to be burned. Paul says, you can do that, but if you don't have love in the kingdom of God, it does not matter, okay? And so if we're not excelling in this, then it doesn't matter what else we do. And so this is a core foundational mark of a healthy, maturing church. And God has to do this in our midst. This is serious business. It matters. It matters whether or not we're committed to the gospel. It matters whether or not we're a church that's growing in our capacity to love. 
And of course, the two go together. These are the two great commandments. We love God and we love our neighbor as ourself. And the gospel is the greatest expression of our love for God. And if we love God, we learn from him, we're informed by his word, and now we're in a place to love one another. We're trusting God to accomplish this in our midst, in our day. We want to see God use us in mighty ways for his glory. And so, God, we pray that you would, would do this work in our midst. We pray, God, that you would keep us in the word, that we would be more and more convinced of the truth of the gospel, not just as uh, propositions, but, God, as a, as a life you've given us. We pray we would preach the gospel to ourselves day by day, and we would experience more and more of you. We pray that we would know that you are good, and we would experience your goodness, and your love would be compelling. The love of Christ would actually control us, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act. And we pray, God, that our love would abound more and more in real knowledge and in discernment. We pray, God, that you would prompt us to love in surprising ways, in, uh, in counterintuitive ways, in ways that really uh, show off the gospel to one another and to everyone else. God, we ask that you do this in our midst. We want to be used by you. We want to see you do things in our, in our midst, in this community, and around the world. And so we cry out to you. We pray you would work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.